If you'd open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to go back there again today. I hope you've been keeping up with our um, Foundations Bible reading plan that we've been working on the past, uh, this past semester. Uh, and there's definitely a lot of value, and I think it's very important that we as a church read through the Bible, the whole Bible, the, the whole story of the Bible. But I would also say this, um, that when it comes to reading God's Word, there is a benefit to, uh, to pausing and reading the same passage days in a row, maybe even weeks and thinking over and praying over uh, the same passage of Scripture um, for an extended period of time. Uh, That's what I hope you've been able to do. That's what I've been trying to do over the past several weeks as we've talked through this passage in Isaiah 9, as we've studied it and and looked at every little part of it, um, especially in verse 6 and 7, because I want us to see just all that is packed into these verses. And so I want us to read it again. Matthew chapter, or I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2, and we're going to read down through verse 7. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his oppressor, the rod of his, or the staff of his shoulder, the, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As I prayed and thought through this passage the past really couple weeks since Blake preached last, last week, I've had kind of two weeks to think on uh, what I was going to preach on today. You see this wide range of titles come up. You see this, this, this wide range of things that, that almost really, in a sense, don't seem to fit together, but they do in the person of Jesus. You see in those first few verses this talk of one who was going to end the war. One who was going to... It says there in verse verse, uh, 5 that every boot of trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He's saying that there's going to be no more war. There's going to be no more need for battle because it's going to be done away with in the Messiah. That he is going to end it all. And then the next very next thing we read is that it's a child. We're thinking warrior, then we hear of a child. Then we hear of being spoken of that we're receiving a son, but yet he's a father. And this same father is the almighty God. These titles all are referring to our Messiah, and even though they don't seem to fit, they do in the person of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, who is probably one of the greatest Baptist preachers ever to live, he said this, He said, how complex is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? Almost in the same breath, the prophet calls him a child and a counselor, a son and the everlasting father. There is no contradiction, and to us scarcely a paradox. 
But it is a mighty marvel that he who was an infant should at the same time be infinite. He who was the man of sorrows should also be God over all, blessed forever. And that he who is, in, who is the, in the divine trinity, always called the Son, should nevertheless be correctly called the everlasting Father. We've looked in this passage in Matthew, or in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, when it talks about wonderful counselor. We've studied what that means. We've studied what it means uh, when he says that he is our mighty God. And today I want us to look at that next title, the title of everlasting Father. What does it mean when we're told that the Messiah, our Messiah, is our everlasting Father? Let's think about it. Number first point I want to share this morning is that our King Jesus is eternal. He is eternal. The Bible says there that He is our everlasting Father. That word everlasting means eternal. I say that and I bring that up and I, and I, I will repeat that over and over again because I don't want you to make the same mistake that so many Christians make. Lifeway came out with a study here recently, I think it was in 2018, and they studied Christians in America and asked them about the person of Jesus. And 78% of Christians in America said that Jesus was a created being. That he was the first one the Father created and the greatest one the Father created. That is not what Scripture teaches. I made that same mistake when I was a child. In the logic of a child, you think about the fact that God the Father was there and then on Christmas morning, God the Son was born. That was what I thought because it seemed to make sense in my childly mind. But Scripture makes clear that Jesus was not created. Jesus is the Creator. That Jesus is eternal. Our Messiah was, He is, and is to come. There never has been a time, nor will there ever be a time, in which Jesus was not. He is everlasting. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And just to remove all confusion as to who the Word is, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Our Son, the Son of God, is the Word of God. He is the eternal God. John 8, 58, Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. He is declaring that he is eternal. In that, in that passage in John chapter 8, he is arguing with the Jewish leaders. And they are, they, they are not liking Jesus in that moment. They are fighting back against him. They're beginning to call him a Samaritan. They're, they're calling him a, 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 a um, someone who is not true. They're saying he's a demon-possessed man. They're coming up with everything because he did not fit their system. Because he was not one of them. They begin arguing with him, with him about Abraham. And in that statement, Jesus comes back at them and says, Hey, before Abraham was, I am. And in John 8, 58, in that verse, I want you to notice that Jesus did not say, Before Abraham was, I was. He said, Before Abraham was, I am. And in that moment, he's not just saying that he's older than Abraham. What he is claiming is the name of God. He is claiming in that moment that God, that, that name of God that we hear in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses says, hey, if I go back to the Israelites, who am I going to tell them sent me? Because they're going to ask, what God was it that sent you? And he says, tell them my name, I am. 
And it was God's way of saying he is eternal. He was, he is, he is to come. And so Jesus in that moment in John 8, 58 is saying before Abraham was, I am, I am God. I am the eternal one. He said it in Revelation chapter 22, 13. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Our Savior had no beginning and he will have no end. He has eternally been and will eternally be. He is ever lasting. And this is why that matters. This is why that matters. Let me tell you, because if Jesus is eternal, guess what? His love for us is eternal as well. His love for us is everlasting. It is never ending. It will never run out. It will never be fully spent. You will always be a child whom he loves if you are one of his children. And guess what that also means? That his payment for our sin is eternal. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 tells us that Christ died once for the sins of man, and that one death was sufficient to pay for all the sins of man, past, present, and future. Jesus has paid it all. There will never be a day in which the bank account of God's forgiveness will go, will, will go bankrupt. There will never be a day when the funds run out. It has eternally been paid. And because of that, because His love is eternal, because His, his death on the cross paid an eternal price, guess what? His grasp on our souls is eternal as well. We cannot lose our salvation. He is eternally our Savior King. There is nothing that Satan can do to remove you from the hand of Jesus. And guess what? This is good news too. There is nothing that you can do to remove yourself from the hand of Jesus as well. He is eternally our Savior King. His precious blood has paid the eternal price and nothing can change that. He is our everlasting Savior, our everlasting Messiah. And so I share that to say this, don't let the devil tell you that you can't have the hope of Jesus. Don't let the devil convince you that you can't know that you're saved. had a couple opportunities in the past few weeks to share the gospel with some individuals, and the response I got in both instances was this. I asked them, do you, do you know that you're going to heaven when you die? Well, I hope so. I hope that's where I'm going to go. I'm trying to live a good life. I hope so. Jesus came to this earth as the eternal Messiah so that you can know so, so that you can have the assurance because He eternally is your Savior. There is no wondering, there is no need to worry. If you put your faith and trust in our eternal Savior, He will save you for eternity. And there is nothing you can do to lose that. And so that ought to give you cause to praise the Lord today. Because He is our everlasting Father. But the title gets even better because, because Isaiah says here that our Messiah is our everlasting Father. And so second point I want to make this morning is that Jesus is fatherly. That our Messiah is fatherly. And I say it like that for a reason. I, I, I say that that Jesus is fatherly because I want you to understand that Jesus is like a father. He is like the father, but he is not the father. I don't want you to become confused. Um, I don't want to create confusion with this verse. Isaiah is not telling us that the Messiah, Jesus, is God the father. 
there are groups that have been confused about this. There, there's, a, there's, a, uh, um, there's a heresy that has floated around Christianity for thousands of years um, called modalism. And it is a belief that God the Father became God the Son, who then in turn became God the Spirit. Uh, there's, a, there's a church today called the Oneness Pentecostals that hold to that, and there's other groups that hold to that as well. But that is not what Scripture teaches. It's not true. Jesus tells us in John 10, 30 that I and the Father are one. He says, he and the Father are one. In John 14, verse 9, it says, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. But yet Jesus also makes clear that he and the Father are two distinct individuals in the Trinity. He tells us that he was sent by the Father. He prays to the Father. He seeks to know the Father's will. He speaks of returning to the Father. What he's trying to say is that he is the, the eternal essence of the Father. He is the representation of the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 tells us. He's of the same character. He is holy. He is just. He is infinite, just as the God, God the Father is. And so he is like the Father in every way, the visible representation of the Father. But with that said, when Isaiah tells us here that, that our Messiah is the everlasting Father, that got me to thinking about earthly fathers. It got me to thinking about um, how Jesus is like a father. And I know that the subject of earthly fathers can bring up a wide range of emotion. I know for some, when you think about your earthly father, you, you think of joy because you had a good experience and you may have had a wonderful dad. Uh, for some, when you think about an earthly father, maybe it brings up anger because of a poor experience, maybe because your dad wasn't even around, maybe he abandoned your family. For some, it might bring up feelings of sorrow even because you've lost your father and you wish that you could see your earthly father again and speak to him again. But unfortunately, in this sin-cursed life that we live in, um, I don't think really any of us have a perfect experience when it comes to earthly fathers. And so when we hear the Bible speak of our heavenly father, or we hear of it speak of Jesus being like the father, for some it can be difficult to really get a good picture of that because our earthly experience with fathers is not a good one for some people. But if ever there was one who walked the face of this earth who would qualify as the perfect father, it would be Jesus. It would be Jesus. And so I want, I want to share with you just briefly um, how Jesus is like the perfect father to his children. Number one, like a father, Jesus gives life. He gives life. Earthly fathers give life to their children. We can think about that strictly in a, a, a physical sense. We all understand that, that, that with the exception of the virgin-born son of God, the virgin-born Messiah, every single child to be born has an earthly father. We can understand that in that physical sense, but we can also understand it in a relational sense. A good earthly father will give life to their children. They will inspire their children. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he gave life physically. He healed diseases. He cast out demons. He brought the dead back to life. But he also gave life relationally. He also gave life spiritually and emotionally. I think about the woman who was caught in adultery. He restored her life. He affirmed her worth before God. I think about the woman with the issue of blood. You remember that story? And how she reached out and touched Jesus' garment and she was restored. She was healed in that moment. He did not just heal her physically. He healed her emotionally. 
He healed her relationally. She was now allowed to come back into the, the religious life of Israel. She would have been considered ceremonially unclean. Jesus healed her. She was allowed to come back in. To the woman at the well, he gave her life through the truth. He, he pointed her to the one true God. To the lepers that he cleansed, he gave them life because no longer did they have to live on the outskirts of town. Now they could come back to their families. They were no longer outcasts. They now could come back in. To the lost and the hurting, he gave life through hope. He introduced them to the Heavenly Father. He gave them a new relationship. He set them free from their sin. Jesus does the same today. Just like a father, he gives life. The Bible tells us he is the creator of all. That by him, through him, and for him, all things were made. Jesus has given you life today, physically. And he's also given you life today spiritually. Because through his life, you have eternal life. Secondly, just like an earthly father, he provides and he cares for us. I believe any good earthly father is going to take seriously that, that responsibility he has to provide for his family. I mean, honestly, no good able-bodied man ought to sit at home and do nothing while he watches his family struggle. Every single good, able-bodied man is going to get up and go do something to provide for and to care for his family. A, a good father is going to nurture his children. He's going to protect them. He's going to provide for them. He's going to give his wife the love that she needs. In his ministry, Jesus provided for those who were in need. I think about when Jesus fed the 5,000. And then he turned around later and fed the 4,000. Here were these people that he said, the Bible tells that Jesus felt compassion for them. He, he saw them as like, a, as like sheep without a shepherd. And he, he felt their need and he met it. He provided for them. I think about those who, the, 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 those who were sick, those who were demon-possessed, that he healed, he met their needs, he cared for them. He, he called children to himself to bless them. Today, our fatherly Messiah still cares for us. He provides for us by being a mediator for us to the Father. He provides for us by answering our prayer. He provides for us by sending the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts, to give us guidance and wisdom, to remind us of His will. Our Messiah provides for us. Third, He protects us. That just like a father, our, our, our Messiah, Jesus, protects us. You know, as a dad, I try to make sure that my house is safe. I try to make sure that I think about where we're going. I don't want to put my kids in harm's way. I don't want to put my wife in harm's way. I don't want to put them in dangerous situations. But I would say this as well. Protecting my kids doesn't mean that I also always shelter them from harm and from failure. Does that make sense? Sometimes I, you have to allow them to, to do things. Um, but I must protect them from evil. You know, as I consider the ministry of Jesus, I think about the way that he protected his disciples, but I also think about the fact that Jesus allowed them to fail. He allowed them to get themselves into messes. He allowed them to find themselves in the middle of the storms. He allowed them to struggle and experience hardship. He, he, uh, he repeatedly told them they were going to face persecution uh, for his name's sake, he didn't prevent the storms in their life. But let me tell you this, he always came to them in the midst of their storms. He protected them. Today, Jesus still protects us. He protects us from sin and from evil through his commands. 
And when we obey those commands, those commands protect us from the consequence of sin, the pain of sin. Our Savior promises, His promise of never-ending love and care calms our hearts when we're in the midst of the storm. They remind us of His love. He protects us. Fourth, like a father, our Savior encourages us. You know, I learned very quickly as a dad, and I'm still learning this, and if you're a dad, you know this as well, you learn that, that your words have a lot of power in your kids' lives. As any parent, you, you learn that the things that you say do a lot. They can impact your kids in, in, in powerful ways. The things that you say can build them up or it can tear them down. The things that you say can draw them closer or it can drive them away. The things that you say can, can lead them to love the Lord or it can actually lead them to despise the Lord. Jesus knew the power of words and He knew how to encourage. And He spoke words like these, Come to, all, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said words like, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He said words like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said words like, in this world you will have tribulation. That doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? But yet he said this, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Doesn't his word encourage you today? When you open the word of God, even when you read difficult passages, doesn't it encourage you? Because you realize that the Lord is with you and He is guiding you. It gives you hope when you feel like you're living in a hopeless world. I believe it gives me peace in times when it seems like peace can't be found. It gives me clarity in an age of confusion. It it gives me love in a world full of hatred. It gives us direction in the darkness. Our Savior encourages us. Fifth, uh, just like a father, our Savior, our Jesus, he, He disciplines us. He disciplines us. You know, I will say as a dad, I can't say that I enjoy disciplining my kids. I mean, isn't that true as a parent? You don't really enjoy handing out spankings. You don't really enjoy uh, the timelines. I mean, you, you receive this child at birth, and, and here is this, this bundle of joy, and you love that child, and you want to, that child to love you, and, and then it just seems like the devil comes out of them, you know? And the next thing you know, this bundle of joy is a holy terror, and, and, and you know you have to discipline that child. You know you have to do something. But I will tell you, I did not understand the truth of that old saying, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, until I had kids. And then I realized, yeah, it really does hurt me. Sometimes, many times, more than it hurts them. Part of you wants to ignore the bad behavior just because you're like, oh, you know, I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to hurt, you know. But you realize you have to because by doing so, you're saving them from death. You have to discipline good dad has to discipline. It's painful for the moment, but you realize it's beneficial for the long run. Jesus disciplined his followers in his earthly ministry. He called out his disciples over and over again. He called sin, sin. He corrected their poor behavior. He corrected their bad motives. He corrected their poor words. He did not gloss over their sin and say, it's okay, just try harder. No, he called them out and called them to repentance. And today he disciplines us. He does it through his word. As it guides our action, He does it through the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to be the one who would reside in our soul and convict us of sin so that He could bring us back so we would not suffer the consequence of sin. And I would say this as well, that Jesus disciplines us through the church. 
He did not give us his word and tell us to go out and live out our faith alone. He placed us within the body of the church so that we could hold one another accountable. And so at times the church can discipline the one who has fallen into sin. Our Savior disciplines us. But lastly, I would say this, that just like a good father, Jesus never gives up on us. Ever gives up on us. Never gives up hope. He never stops. A good father never stops praying, never stops believing, never writes off his kids. He always holds out hope. You know, when I read about the disciples, um, and I read of how much of a mess they were, and it kind of encourages me. You know what I mean? It makes me feel better about myself, <laughs> you know? Um, it makes me realize that, man, here are these guys, here are these 12 guys that, that uh, we, we look at today and we think, man, these are like, these guys ought to, are our heroes, but then we read of their mistakes. I mean, it was like they were constantly putting their feet in their mouths. I mean, they, they were constantly arguing over things. They, they fought over who was the greatest. They lost faith in the middle of storms. They forgot the miracles Jesus did. I mean, you remember that time whenever Jesus fed the 5,000 and not too much later he fed the 4,000 and his disciples forgot that he had fed the 5,000 and wondered how in the world they were going to feed the 4,000? They constantly were messing up, but yet Jesus never threw in the towel. Jesus never once said, you know what, you 12, y'all have failed. I'm going to go find another new 12 and we're going to move on. He never did that because he never gave up on them and he never gives up on you. John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. He's talking about us. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus never gives up on you. Now, if you put all that together, when you think about all that right there, and you couple that with the fact that our Messiah is the eternal one, the everlasting Father, he is going to eternally be all of that to us as His children. Isn't that good news? Isn't that something worth praising? And I would say it not only never ends, it gets better. Because in this life, on this side of heaven, we, we, we believe in faith and we walk by faith. But there will come a day where we will step into eternity and we will see our Messiah face to face. And we will experience His love and His care in a way that we can't even imagine today. That is our Messiah. Would you pray with me? Father God, how we thank You that You have sent Your Son to be the Savior of the world. And You made Him the perfect representation that Jesus comes as the image of the invisible God that He is fully like You, our Father. And that today, He is our mediator. You have given us a great gift in Your Son. And today we thank You. Father, I pray today that if there's someone in this room who does not know our everlasting Savior, who has never experienced the love 
the hope, the peace that Jesus offers. I pray that today would be their day of salvation. I pray for that individual. If, that's, if there's someone in this room today who fits that description, I pray that they would understand that Jesus came and died on a cross for their sin so that they might receive forgiveness and have eternal life. If only they would admit their sin, repent of that sin, confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, ask Him to forgive them of their sin. Father, if there's someone who needs to make that decision today, I pray that they would come forward during this invitation so that we can talk more, so that we can make sure they understand the gospel, so we can pray with them and celebrate their new life in you. And Father, I pray for us as a church that we would constantly declare and believe in and trust in the goodness of our eternal Savior, that we would never doubt the love that Jesus has for us. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Stand as we sing this song of invitation.